Welcome to Season 2 of Fracktown Gumshoe, Holy Fits, based on the novels by Deborah Gaskill. Chapter 9 Mary Margaret pulled a cell phone from her skirt pocket and started to dial it. I grabbed it from her with one hand and with the other pushed her towards the staircase, Fiona following behind. We're not done here, St. Giles, I said over my shoulder. We'll be back. He followed us to the door, smirking all the way down the stairs. By the time the three of us had piled into the excursion, the wide, stone porch was filled with gawking cult members. I started the vehicle and threw it into gear, spitting gravel as we sped down the drive. Why'd you take my cell phone? I was trying to call my mom, Mary Margaret wailed. Shut up, I barked as we swerved onto the road. A wide place appeared on the side of the pavement, so I pulled over, slamming on the brakes. You could have put us in danger. Do you realize that? Anything could have happened. He might have thought we were calling the police. He might have had weapons underneath those robes. He could have panicked and shot us. You could have gotten us all killed. Who the fuck knows what could have happened? Mary Margaret collapsed in tears. Jesus Christ, Fitz. She's just a kid. Fiona stepped out of the passenger seat and pulled off her wig, fake teeth, and heavy glasses. She opened up the back door to comfort her. I rolled my eyes as Fiona rubbed Mary Margaret's back, shushing her. I looked over my shoulder to the field beside me. I wanted to rip both of them apart. Fiona for lying to me, and Mary Margaret for pulling out her phone. If I was getting some cash out of Mary Margaret's mother, and if I knew what the hell Fiona's story was, I might have handled this with kid gloves. Since there wasn't a dime and I couldn't trust either one of them, they both could just deal with it. Instead, I concentrated on the bales of hay lying in a haphazard rows. Two men were walking alongside a hay wagon, pulled by a tractor driven by a third man. As I watched, one man tossed a bale of hay onto the wagon, and the second jumped on top of the wagon and stacked it neatly. As they came closer, I got a better look at them. The guy stacking the bales was big and beefy, wearing a Confederate flag t-shirt, covered by an open flannel shirt that was flapping in the breeze. Dirt and oil were ground into his jeans and boots. His work gloves were tan, spotted black with oil, and every few feet or so, an arc of tobacco juice shot out of his mouth onto the ground. Walking alongside the wagon, tossing the bales like they were pillows, was a ponytailed man with thin cheeks, beak-like nose, and a long neck that sat between a pair of the most muscular shoulders I'd seen since I got thrown off the Kent State football team in the 70s. He was wearing a wife-beater t-shirt, work boots, jeans, work gloves. It was Tate Slocum. The guy prosecutor Alicia Linnerman was trying to nail for fraud. Mr. Disability, as I called him. Suddenly, I realized I parked in the same place I'd been two days before when we met and confronted St. Giles. These fields belonged to St. Matilda's Abbey. That meant Mr. Disability was working for St. Giles. If I believed in God, I would have thanked him. I pulled my camera out from beneath my front seat with a telephoto lens. Got some stop-action photos of Slocum tossing bales of hay into the wagon. A flick of a button put the camera into video mode, and I got more proof of his ability to commit fraud, as he easily tossed bale after bale from the ground to the wagon. What the hell are you doing? Fiona asked, sliding back into the passenger seat. Is this really the time to indulge in some idiot photography hobby? Shh, I said, the viewfinder up against my face. I'd been looking for this guy on another case. Maybe he can save our bacon on this one, too. What do you mean? Mary Margaret was calm, but her voice still quavered. She fastened her seatbelt as I sat the camera in between Fiona and me. 
I put the excursion in gear and pulled back onto the road. As the tractor, driven by one of St. Giles's fake monks, came close enough to see us. You'll see soon, I said. Let's get back to the office and see what our next move is. The three of us were silent as we drove back into town. Fiona was the first to speak as we came to the first traffic light at the edge of town. How about you drop me off at my hotel first, Fiona said. You don't want to come back with us? I shot a look her way as the light turned green and I slowly accelerated into traffic. She didn't look back at me. No, I think I'll change into my jeans if you don't mind. I do mind. I wanted to ask you a question or two. Like what? Like who's Susan Bukowski? Where'd you get that name? The one you gave St. Giles. It's Jeff Kovach's mother's maiden name. So he knows we're on to him? Great. If that is truly Kovach, I thought you said he was. I said we've been looking for him for a long time and he used to go by a lot of different names. I didn't speak until I pulled up next to the curb in front of the hotel. I grabbed her hand as she reached for her purse. You would think you'd know the face of the man who shot your husband, Fiona. I said softly. If anything was burned into your consciousness, you'd think it would be that face. A single tear rolled down her cheek, and those familiar brown eyes bore right through me. You don't understand, Fitz. Give me a chance, Fee. Just give me a chance. She shook her head as she stepped from the SUV. No, Fitz. Just no. Bridget Cleary was waiting in her car when Mary Margaret and I got back to the office. I pulled up along the curb. Mary Margaret jumped from the excursion before it came to a stop. Her mother stepped from her parked car, a nondescript piece of shit with a muffler held in place with a wire clothes hanger. Kind of like her life. How did it go? Is Grammy coming home? Mary Margaret, you said you'd call me as soon as it was over. Mary Margaret hugged her mother. Mr. Fitzhugh took my phone from me when we left. I was trying to call too soon, and I didn't think that awful man, that St. Giles monster, had a gun. But he could have. Mr. Fitzhugh said he could have killed us. He could have killed us. I pulled the offending cell phone from my jacket pocket and handed it to Mary Margaret. I couldn't decide if she was truly terrified about the mistake she'd committed or filled with some pseudo-sexual adrenaline thrill, particular to females who really needed laid. Not that I would ever be me. I swallowed the bile in the back of my throat and shivered. I gestured toward the office door. Let's talk about this inside, okay? We sat down in my glass cage office, and I filled Bridget in on what happened. From the looks of it, as much as I hate to say, she seems fairly lucid and committed to this life in this cult. I can't force her to leave. You probably should go down to the prosecutor's office and file charges for theft. Outside of physically grabbing her and pulling her out of there, I don't know if there's much more I can do. I think your next step should be through the courts. Maybe to seek a conservatorship. Bridget rooted through her carnivorous purse and pulled out a wad of court papers. I think it may be a little too late, she said, shoving them towards me. Abbot Benedict St. Giles has already done that. I got served with the papers an hour ago. He says I've abandoned my mother. You've got to, to extract my mother out of that place. I don't care how you do it, but you've got to get her out. Bridget, that's not what I do. I'm a private investigator, not some mercenary in camouflage from some made-for-TV movie. Your mother promised me and Father O'Malley, God rest his soul, you'd do anything to help me get my mother back. Listen, 
We've known each other for a long time. A goddamn long time. You know I can't just bust in there and snatch somebody like SEAL Team 6. That's crazy. Your mother promised you'd do anything, anything. I'd hate to go back and tell her you won't. I won't do something crazy, Bridget. Bridget gathered the court papers from the desk and shoved them back in her carnivorous purse. I'm going to hate to be the one to disappoint your mother, Niccolo, but I will. I rubbed my hands across the stubble of my beard. Jesus, how do I get myself into these things? The phone didn't ring that afternoon and no one came into the office to waste my time. I gave Mary Margaret the remainder of the day off, saying I needed time to think about what to do next. But that wasn't what filled my thoughts. Instead, the memories of a more dangerous time flooded back as I sat with my feet on my desk, sipping my cup of coffee. Through the coffee steam, I could once again see Tony Del Vecchio's face inches from mine, dripping sweat and blood, his eyes crazy with cocaine. Funny how it all came back. I was on my back, his hand around my throat as he pounded my skull against the alley's brick pavement, shiny with black ice. Paranoid and crazed after a three-day cocaine binge, Del Vecchio dragged Nancy Pecorino into the bathroom of the Red Peacock Lounge, screaming about some perceived infidelity, then slit her throat. He jumped out the John window just as Fiona and I pulled up. I chased him down a dark alley behind the bar until I found myself cornered in the alley's dead end. Del Vecchio jumped out from behind some trash cans, clutching the same knife that took Nancy's life. The second I saw him, I knew I was going to get cut. I pulled my chin down to protect my throat, keeping my fists pointed inward. I closed in without a second thought. Crouching, I took the slash to my shoulder. Ignoring the pain screaming down my arm, I came up under his knife arm and bowled into his gut. We struggled. Del Vecchio clutched the knife in his fist like a hammer, its bloody serrated blade facing up, ready to gut me like one of the PCB poisoned fish regularly pulled from the river that ran through town. The knife came up again toward my throat. I grabbed his arm and twisted till he screamed and the knife fell to the pavement. I kicked it into a dark corner and landed a couple of blows on Del Vecchio's face, feeling his nose pop beneath my fist before I slipped on black ice and he overpowered me. Slamming my head against the pavement again and again, he roared like the bull that he was, if bulls could be dressed in a wannabe gangsta jackets and tight black jeans. Lights flashed as I fought to hang on to consciousness. I tried to reach for my service weapon, the first time in my career this far. I managed to unsnap the holster, but Del Vecchio got to it first. My head stopped hitting the bricks. I tried to gather my senses when the cold steel of the gun barrel kissed my temple. Don't move! Don't even fucking move! I'm gonna kill you! Del Vecchio screamed, training the gun on the side of my face with both hands. I'm gonna fucking kill you just like that bitch! Put the gun down, Del Vecchio! It was Fiona, standing at the exit of the blocked alleyway. Her handgun was trained on him, her feet planted defensively. I knew from a Saturday at the range she was a crack shot, but shooting paper targets and shooting a man as he tried to kill your partner were two different things. Del Vecchio looked up and pointed the gun at her. I wasn't as big as Del Vecchio, not by a long shot, but the black eyes played into my favor and his knees slid slightly, shifting his balance. I pushed him off of me, scrambling to my feet. Still dopehead strong, Del Vecchio recovered his balance and grabbed my arm as I tried to reach for my baton. He twisted my arm behind my head and shoved the gun against my temple again. 
Put the gun down, Del Vecchio. Fiona repeated. No! Del Vecchio screamed. Don't shoot, Fee! Don't shoot! I screamed. The blood from my head wound dripped down the back of my collar. Blood from the cut on my shoulder soaked my sleeve and I was crazy from the pain. In the cold night, it was the warmest thing against my skin. Would it be the last thing I felt when Del Vecchio blew my brains all over the alley? Or would it be Fiona who sent me to meet St. Peter face to face? It was the most dangerous shot any cop, let alone a rookie cop, would take. One wrong move on my part or Del Vecchio's, and Officer Fiona Lenane could permanently end my career, as well as her own. Would my dad be attending my funeral too soon after his own retirement? A vision of the Fitzhugh clan circled around my grave flashed through my mind. I don't fucking think so. We crashed into the trash cans against the wall. Fiona's hands wavered as she fought to keep her sights focused on her target as I struggled with Del Vecchio. I felt the cold gun barrel rest against my temple, and then my jaw as we circled like two badly out-of-step dancers. I slipped again on the black ice and Del Vecchio pushed me against the wall. I held both hands up against the cold brick wall. Blood bubbles mixed with snot expanded and contracted from Del Vecchio's nostrils as he held the gun to my forehead. Ready to die, cop? Del Vecchio hissed. Not yet, motherfucker, not yet. I brought my knee up to his nuts. Del Vecchio screamed and I dropped to the ground, covering my head with my arms as a handgun fired. I felt blood spray on my face. Certain I was wounded, but wondered why I didn't feel any more pain. What kind of pain did someone feel when they took a fatal bullet? Del Vecchio moaned, staggered, and fell on top of me. A single bullet in the back of his head. I looked up at Fiona, watching her calmly holster her gun. She'd done it. That tiny little half-pint rookie I didn't think would make it through her first year had just saved my life. She'd taken the shot and hit the target. Del Vecchio. Two cruisers pulled up to the entrance of the alley and the cops jumped out, weapons drawn, running towards us. I didn't care. I pushed Del Vecchio's body off of me and ran towards Fiona. Without thinking, I wrapped my arms around her to kiss her. To my surprise, she kissed me back. I took my feet from atop the desk and fished through one of the bottom drawers. I pulled a manila envelope, something no one ever saw, from beneath a bottle of Jack Daniels and a box of ammunition I kept there. I didn't look at it too often. Just when Del Vecchio's face, his blank eyes staring back from beneath a thin stream of blood, crawled into a bottle with me to ensure I was no longer alone. I opened the brass closure and opened the flap, knowing what I'd find inside. The next day, the biggest thing on the Fawcettville Times front page was the shooting. Splashed above the fold was a picture of Del Vecchio's body in the circled glow of a streetlight spotted with snow flurries being loaded into the coroner's van. Below it was the screaming headline, Rookie Shot Saves Partner. Our department headshots hung in the text beneath the headlines. We found ourselves on desk duty for a couple months while the shooting was investigated and my shoulder healed, but as expected, we were cleared. A subsequent civil suit against the department was also dismissed. Fiona got a commendation medal for her clear-eyed actions, the first female and the first rookie on the force to ever get one. The Times got photos of us both when we went to Nancy's funeral. That picture was in the file as well. What they didn't show was by that time, she'd been partnered with another officer, and we'd started dating. I smoothed the articles across my desk and sighed. 
I hadn't thought of Del Vecchio for a couple years, but I couldn't see Fiona without remembering that night. There were other things in that file, but I couldn't bring myself to look at them right now. I wonder if she kept things too. Does Fiona have an envelope full of memories that she looks at when she feels doubts about what she's done and where she's been? Gracie's voice echoed through my head. Stop it, Niccolo. Stop it right now. She was right. Fiona may have been the one that got away, but Gracie was the right one to keep. I slipped the articles back into the envelope and placed it back beneath the Jack Daniels and the ammunition boxes. I needed to see Tate Slocum. He was going to help me out of this mess with Benedict St. Giles. He just didn't know it yet. Please consider a small monthly donation to help us fund the cost of producing this podcast. Make no mistake, we do this podcast as a labor of love, but your support would be greatly appreciated. We've devised three levels of sponsorship, support, and rewards. Take a look at patron.podbean.com slash fracktowngumshoe. And thank you again for your support. This episode is narrated by Casey Martin. Fracktown Gumshoe is based on the novels by Deborah Gaskill.